Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, you know I just came back from Beijing. Yes, and uh, we haven't even talked about it yet, but I saw all of your pictures and I'm extremely jealous. Yeah, the the food was very good, and uh, you should be jealous because you missed out on quite a lot. Uh, the, but you know, the, I the, hadn't. <laughs> you had some lamb thing, like a big, like gigantic barbecued lamb that just looked like the best thing I've ever seen. Is that right? It was so good. It was amazing. Yeah. It was like a Mongolian barbecued leg of lamb that you grill at your own little table, and then you dip it into crushed peanuts and salt, and it was good. I'm allergic to peanuts, but other, but everything else sounded amazing. All right. Uh, well, next time you come, we will have that without the peanuts. But, you know, I hadn't been back uh, to Beijing for like 13 or 14 years, and there were so many changes to the city, like really big ones. Whole areas of it are just unrecognizable to what they looked like in 2005, 2006. Uh, I feel like we should do a whole episode at some point just like you comparing uh beijing over 13 years i bet people would be interested in that uh i don't think i was as um financially minded uh back in 2005 and 2006 but i i was gonna say one of the biggest changes uh in that time period has of course been to china's capital market so 13 years ago china didn't really have much of a corporate bond market and now it has a pretty big one both domestically and uh, dollar denominated offshore bonds as well but most importantly china's corporate bond market has had a number of defaults in recent years and that's a really big change because historically you know it, it was kind of uncertain that the authorities in china would allow companies to default so you can imagine joe uh, that makes for an interesting bond market, given that bonds are, of course, supposed to reflect investors' perception of default risk. Yeah, I remember, like, I guess, what was it, 2014 or 2015, the first ever uh, yeah. Chinese bond default. And I remember thinking, like, how is this possible? Like, how could you have the first ever bond default? And I almost, like, thought I was misreading the article as this idea that there had never been a defaulted bond before. But obviously, you know, we sort of take for granted the maturity of the U.S. bond market, the U.S. corporate bond market, and then defaults even in good times. You know, they happen from time to time uh, with low rated companies. We sort of take for granted that not all markets are as uh, mature and uh, sort of market regulated the way the U.S. one is. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I remember in 2015, Analysts over at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, they published a note that was basically a history of Chinese corporate bond defaults. And there were like two things on there. Right. Uh, it was a, it was a pretty short note, as you might imagine. But it raises all these interesting questions about how do you actually develop a corporate bond market almost from scratch? And what sort of distortions or unique characteristics are introduced when you have a big question mark? over whether or not defaults will be allowed. And I should just say, one of the defining features of China's uh, sort of business system as a whole is the division between private companies and right. state-owned enterprises. So SOEs, uh, these big state-run conglomerates that are often thought to be government-backed or even government-guaranteed. Right. Well, uh, I'm interested in learning more about this topic. 
All right. So we actually have the perfect guest uh, to talk about all of this. Uh, it's someone who's done a lot of ac academic work on exactly this topic, uh, as well as a lot of other stuff. It's Jun Pan. Uh, she is a professor at the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance at Shanghai Jiaotong University. So Jun, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for, for the invitation. It's exciting to hear what, what you and Joe just uh, mm -hmm. talked about. It's really an interesting topic uh, for me at the moment. Right. So you actually just published a paper where you were looking at this exact topic and specifically you were looking at whether or not spreads or risk premiums on China's corporate bonds actually reflect the health, the financial health of its companies. But before we dive into that, um, I, I wanted to sort of ask you a, a broader question about how China's financial markets are currently structured. So corporate bonds are supposed to be market-based uh, versus the sort of traditional bank-based system of lending in China. Uh, and what I mean by market-based is investors are setting or influencing funding costs by demanding a certain level of compensation for perceived risk. So how big of a leap was it or is it for China to move from that bank-based system of lending to something that incorporates more market-based types of lending? I would say it's a uh... It's a big leap it, for people like myself uh, who works in a uh, in a financial research area in the financial markets. This is a, a very encouraging development to see that uh, China's credit uh, market overall the credit market to be improving. Actually, the speed of the market's development was pretty impressive. Uh, over the past ten years, it grew into a uh, roughly a three trillion U.S. dollar market. So it has been a, a pretty impressive development, just to the credit market alone. So, sorry, break it down. What is the split between how much uh, private credit is funded via something we'd recognize as the bond market versus traditional bank lending? So if you think about the ratio for non-financial firms in China, so we have a, a ratio of market-based debt, so including corporate bonds and also other type of yeah. bonds, basically market-traded versus uh, bank loans. Right. In 2008, it was about 4.6%. Okay. So only a tiny fraction uh, as a ratio to, to the bank loans. You know, China's financial system is still a bank-dominated right. uh, system, not, not like in the U.S. So that number grew from 4.6 in 2008 to a little bit under 20%, to be more precise, 19% in 2018. And much of that improvement hmm. is driven by the uh, the corporate, the credit market. Right. So uh, walk us through your most recent paper. So you're, you're taking a deep dive into Chinese corporate bonds, and you're trying to ascertain whether or not the actual spreads, the risk premiums, reflect something fundamental about the financial health of Chinese companies as they sort of are meant to do in more developed markets. So, you know, if a company is perceived to be at a higher risk of defaults, it'll have a higher spread because investors want to be compensated for that risk. Why did you decide to look into this particular topic? In the U.S. market, this, this question has been well-researched. So you look at companies of different 
let's say, uh, different fundamental risk in terms of default. In academic, we have standard models named after Professor Bob Merton, as we call the Merton model. So in a Merton model, we take the firm's balance sheet information, including its leverage. And also we take the firm's, if the firm is traded uh, with publicly listed equity, we take the equity market information. And one of the key information will be the, Mm. the equity volatility. So the Merton model will take those fundamental plus equity market information as input and give you an assessment of what's the probability of default for the bond issued by this uh, company. And uh, you can get a sense that there will be a connection between model predicted default and the market observed credit spread. Right. So in the U.S., if you take uh, an approach of that, you will see that about 40% of the variation in credit spread can be explained by fundamental. Hmm. So we take this as a starting point, and we want to see whether in China we see a similar direction in terms of fundamental health of the firm and the credit market pricing of the issuer. And, and this is our starting point. Before we get to how well the model works with the Chinese uh, with the Chinese bond market, I'm curious in the U.S. Maybe just talk a little bit about you know I, the U.S. is probably close to the sort of ideal free market or free bond market. Is the Merton model robust enough such that one can use it to identify mispricings or? identify arbitrage opportunities between the price of a bond and the price of an equity? Because you said 40%. So I'm sort of curious whether it's something that's mostly useful from just a pure theoretical perspective or whether it can sort of form the basis for at least initially attempting to identify overvalued or undervalued bonds. Well, <laughs> this is a good question. I mean, our financial models are always approximations right. of the much much richer reality. But this model actually has been used uh, by practitioners. There is a, you probably have heard of it, it's called KMV. Yeah. So KMV was a was a company that, that took exactly the model model and uh, feed the model with all the uh, real data and the, the outcome is the, prob- the KMV's distance to default measure, which is similar to a probability of default measure. I think uh, for those listening who have terminals at home, we have a very good uh, function on the terminal where you can uh, <laughs> enter, see a company's a KMV. Plug, yeah, I thought I had to uh, plug the terminal here, but you can actually, it has the Merton model and you can change some of the assumptions. And so it's very fun. You can uh, sort of measure, uh, you know, the gaps between the price and the CDS and distance to default. You can play around with that. It's very fun. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt right. you. I apologize for that. I would say this model, it's its not perfect. It's, even the Black Shows option pricing formula has a lot of, you know, limitations, but it's a good starting point, a good reference point for us uh, to start with. And it's encouraging that there is a link between the fundamental of the firm and how its uh, bond is priced. And as you move on from the U.S. market to the, to the Chinese market, you will be surprised or maybe not surprised to see that this link actually is, should not be taken for granted, as we see in the in data. 
So imperfections in the Merton model uh, aside, what did your research actually show for the Chinese credit market? Did spreads on China's corporate bonds actually show some sort of link to the, uh, the fundamental health of companies or issuers? I mean, I guess another way of, of asking that question is, is the market-based system actually working in China? So this question has a, a, a no and then a yes. So the no is that uh, before 2014, as as you and George just discussed, before 2014, bonds were not allowed to default. So they were zero default. So prior to 2014, so our data was from 2010 to 2014, we call this the phase one period. During that period, there is no link. Fundamental and the credit spread, there is no link between those two. Why was it there? This idea that the go- there were like there was questions about whether a default would ever be allowed to happen. What was the fear there and what was sort of then driving the market if there was this perception that you know, defaults just weren't going to be a thing? Well, first, let me actually rephrase my previous statement. I should say conditioning on information in ratings, because China does have rating agencies. So they do rate these different bonds. So conditioning on the ratings, firm fundamentals have no uh, additional information. So there is no link. So I I do want to qualify my previous statement. Um, In terms of why defaults were not allowed to happen. I, I guess this is not something, it's difficult for me to speculate on the regulation, mm-hmm. regulators side, but the, the observation from the market participants is that these bonds never default. So there is the Chinese saying of bond market pricing was phase-based. So you hold on to this phase that mm. bonds don't default. So it doesn't really matter about uh, risk compensation because the debt's going to get bailed out anyway if it ever ran into trouble. And hence, there's actually no differentiation shown in the risk premiums that is actually connected to the fundamental health of the company. But you said that was phase one. So what happened in phase two? Okay, so we start our phase two from from 2014. Uh, after the first default. So from phase two to the first quarter of 2018, so over that period, you started to see a connection between the firm fundamentals and the equity market information and the what do you call the risk premium of these bonds or credit spreads of these bonds. They start to develop a link. The link is much weaker than what we see in the U.S. market, but this is, from our end, it looks like a very promising beginning for the Chinese cap, uh, credit market. In your recent paper, and uh, Tracy uh, mentioned this in the very beginning, in the intro, of course, the Chinese private sector, the Chinese uh, corporate market is still segmented massively between 
regular enterprises and state-owned enterprises, which are state-controlled and state-backed to varying degrees. You also look at what the bond market says about the uh, state-owned uh, SOE sector. What do you see are the differences in terms of how the bond market works for those uh, SOEs? So during phase one, which is prior to the default, yeah. there is not too much differentiation between these two groups. Overall, we do see that SOE, these government-sponsored uh, enterprise, the SOEs are state-owned enterprise, right. you know, def- depending on how you call them. Let's just call them SOEs. So during phase one, SOE does have a little bit of uh, a premium, meaning that their credit spreads are narrower compared to the non-SOE counterparts with uh, similar ratings. During phase two, if you remember, phase two was the time uh, from 2014 to 2018 when we started to see defaults. But the defaults happened during that time was mostly to to the non-listed firms. So if you focus on the listed firms, meaning that these firms usually are larger firms in the economy, then the difference between SOE and non-SOE are still a pretty mild Mild in the sense that during phase three, later on, they become explosive. But during phase two, they were still about 20 basis points in terms of difference in the credit spread. Let me rephrase. The, sure. the SOE uh, issuers enjoy about a 20 basis point uh, narrower credit spread compared to that their non-SOE uh, counterpart. So the implicit guarantee seems... Uh, to be very much alive for these state-owned enterprises. And so they have these lower risk premiums, which means they can attract financing at a lower cost than private companies. I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts or, or insights into how the Chinese authorities might be viewing that discrepancy or that segmentation in the market? Like, Is there a desire to put private companies on a more even funding footing, uh, so to speak, with SOEs? Is that something that China wants? May I complete the the whole picture before I talk about what uh, what the policy implication is? So prior to 2018, so 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 far we have two phases. One is pre-default, one is post-default, but up to 2018. You look at the data, the difference between SOE and the non-SOE is mild. It's about 20 basis points of a premium for the SOEs. But going into 2018, this is when the credit market went crazy. This is, so there are different regulations. Even prior to 2018, there was a uh, deleveraging com- campaign that started in 2017. So Gradually, the credit market is was affected by by the regulations. Especially in 2018, there was a um, what they called the asset management new regulations on asset management, which kind of cut the funding or the from the asset manager side, cut their holdings of the credit bonds, or put it another way, it makes them more discriminating against the, how should I say, makes them more aware of the credit risk, even mm. more so than before. So, so this is the time when the the segmentation become 
very severe. So the 20 basis point premium enjoyed by the SOEs exploded to about 100 basis points. Prior, the segmentation between these two markets were uh, was not so severe. Then post-2018, it became a, a really big deal. And uh, along the same time, you see, uh, starting to see a lot more defaults for the non-SOE firms. So it sounds like just listening to you so far as you identify these three phases. So there's the pre-default phase going up to 2014. Uh, everyone enjoyed pretty tight spreads. The bond market didn't tell you very much. Post-2014, you start to get slightly more uh, wider spreads for the private non-SOE companies and more information from the um, bond market period. They, the prices start being more informative. Post-2018, the spreads get even wider. And in this phase, this is uh, due to uh, asset managers being forced to be more cognizant about credit risk. It sounds like a sort of just an ongoing maturation process. I There was a story, and Tracy alerted it to me this morning, that actually there was a, there is an SOE now that is very close, if not near, in default. There are some sort of bondholders are going to have to take a haircut. Are we on the verge of a new a stage four or a phase four, whereby the bond market will start to be more meaningful for also the uh, SOE sector? The private SOEs, you see them, you actually see private listed. When I say private SOE, I mean SOE issuers who do not have uh, publicly listed right, equity. Right. So for this group, we we actually have seen defaults among this group. Ah. I want to go back to uh, my, my earlier question, which was about whether or not it's desirable for the private companies to be on a similar funding um, playing field as the SOEs. Because, of course, in order for that to happen, I guess you, you do need to introduce some sort of default risk into the state-owned enterprise sector, or you have to eliminate it in the private market, which doesn't seem to be um, what China wants at the moment. So is leveling the playing field between those two sectors when it comes to financing, when it comes to moral hazard in the bond market, is that something that's desirable for China? It's it's something desirable, but I just don't see how that would work in this uh, corporate bond market. If you put them together, mm. the SOE has explicit or implicit government guarantee, while the non-SOEs have none. During calm periods, investors are not discriminating against the non-SOEs. But starting at uh, phase three, when you see massive defaults, not massive, but you see increasing amount of defaults happening in the market, then investors are, are nervous. When they are nervous, they shun away from right. the non-SOE issuers. Most of them take only SOE uh, bonds, and they just lock up, lock lock the non-SOE bonds out. So they don't even look at non-SOE bonds. That's the that's the problem. And I I just don't at the policy level it would be difficult to find a way to level the playing. Field for for these two groups, especially during crisis. 
Speaking at the policy level, I want to sort of ask a big picture question. So you mentioned that for through most of history, up until very recently, the Chinese uh, economy, most credit was bank credit, and it wasn't there wasn't even a, really much of a bond market. Uh, if you go back a little bit over a decade, how much of that uh, bank-led market is especially by design, whereby authorities who have sort of priorities in terms of investment can more easily uh, direct bank lending? And I'm curious if the Ongoing growth of the credit market as a me as a vehicle for financing changes at all the ability of decision makers of uh, political leaders to direct money towards key favored industries, or whether that hasn't really changed much. Whether they could still uh, do it, except just through a different avenue. I think having the market-based uh, bond uh, corporate bond market is uh, very important to direct. Hmm. Especially direct funding financing sources for the non-SOEs. I see. Because uh, prior to that, bank funding was mostly directed at SOEs. Right. So it's SOE banks lending to SOE firms. So for the non-SOEs, this credit market is actually very important. And uh, up to 2018, they enjoyed uh, increased issuance. They enjoyed the financing, but Post-2018, as the market was going through a, a very stressful period, their funding sources actually uh, dried, I shouldn't say dried up, but they, they were decreasing steadily. So new issuances by non-SOEs as a fraction of the overall market decreased in the first quarter of 2018. So we've talked a lot about, I guess, the sort of uniqueness of China's corporate bond market at, at this current moment in time. And in many ways, it's still developing and, and maybe it'll get to a similar level to where the U.S. is at the moment, but it's not quite there yet. What do you think this means for international investors? Because, of course, China's corporate bonds are becoming more integrated into international investors' portfolios via inclusion in benchmark indices, uh, including some that are owned by Bloomberg LP, I should just mention. So what does all of this mean for international investors? How should they be viewing China's corporate bond market at the moment? China's fixed income market overall has been opening up. You see a lot of relaxing of uh, restrictions that very much welcome the international investors. Copper bond in particular, I think most of the foreign investment uh, right now is focused on the, uh, on the yield space, not the spread space, meaning that it's focusing most of the uh, government bonds but the, you would say the default-free bond, not the credit bond. But overall, I think this market would would benefit from more international investors. Or conversely, maybe there will be opportunities for international investors to to pick the right bond. Uh, to put it differently, I think if for international investors, these companies that are issue corporate bonds, these are especially for the sample we studied, these are large companies with uh, listed equities. So this could be another way for them to be exposed to the, to the real China in the sense that these are companies doing uh, business in China. 
Jun, that was a fascinating conversation uh, and a really good time to have that conversation given uh, what we've just seen uh, in China's credit market. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That was great. Sure. Thank you. So I found that conversation so so interesting, and、uh, one of the things I always like about、uh, you know markets and and financial regulation and the development of capital markets is the idea that there can be all these unintended consequences. So I'm really fascinated by the idea that by introducing the possibility of default into the private market. China has basically inadvertently、uh, created this big funding cost segmentation, but also kind of created a potential financial stress point. Like the notion that when things get really bad, everyone flees the private companies and heads into the SOE sector. I, I find that really interesting. Right. I mean, I guess the thing is, at at some level, there's going to be. It's hard to imagine the existence of. SOEs and they're not being a major uh, uh, slanted playing field or tilted playing、right. field on some level. Like whether there's a bond market or a stock market or whatever, the fact that a bunch of companies are state-backed and a bunch aren't, you'd imagine that、uh, that's going to create an advantage for the state-backed ones. But to see how that sort of manifests itself, and to even like sort of wrap one's head around the idea of market-based pricing of state-owned enterprises is just extremely. Strange, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Because if it stayed backed, why would they let it default at all? I don't. Know, it's very. It's kind of hard to wrap one's head around from a sort of、uh, U.S. centric perspective. Right. So you definitely have questions around this, and、uh, that company that you mentioned,、uh, the state-owned enterprise, it's called Tewu, and、yeah. uh, it's potentially sort of defaulting on its dollar bonds.、Um, this is a big SOE that's based in、uh, Tianjin, which is in the northern province and has been、um, experiencing a few economic problems.、Uh, so this is going to be a really interesting one to watch, like whether or not this becomes a watershed moment for SOEs. And again, the policy implications. Are absolutely fascinating. Is this something that China is actively trying to encourage in order to introduce more differentiation between its SOEs, or is this something that it doesn't actually want to happen, but it's starting to have to countenance the idea of haircuts or defaults because of its massive debt load and fiscal position? That's sort of the the question that we are in. Yeah, and just more generally, I really like the way she broke it down through the different phases. Because again, I mean, this is obviously just such an incredibly immature market. It's basically、mm. existed for a little over a decade, so I'm sure there will be more phases to come. But so far, what we've seen looks like what you would expect uh, uh, from a sort of maturing, growing industry or mat-、uh, part of the capital markets. And in the in, and if you think about how young it is. It kind of makes sense that they never had defaults in the beginning because you sort of you know you want to build up an investor base, you want to have people have confidence in the market overall. So you sort of get the impression the sort of liberalization of the market. It's slow, but it's also kind of logical. Right. I mean, there's definitely teething problems that you would see in any new capital market, but I do think the picture is、uh, complicated by the structure of the Chinese economy and the existence of、definitely. the SOEs, and it's sort of.、Um, 
it's sort of capital markets with Chinese characteristics, right? Well put. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'd like to just give a shout out to uh, Steve Ho, who's on Twitter. And he actually suggested Jun for an Odd Lots guest. So you can follow Steve at Steve Ho. That's H-O-U and then F. Steve Ho F. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And follow all of our podcasts at Bloomberg at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.